interview, I spoke with Rich Sheridan of Menlo Innovations, who is considered to be the king of the um, the king of the hill, or the or the company, is, at least in terms of of an innovative workplace and a place where joy takes place, and therefore high levels of productivity and quality focus on the customer. When I was in Boston for the Agile Games this spring, I was talking to Dave Grable, who was with Vistaprint, and it was at the conference for the Agile for Executives that Dave met Rich Sheridan. So oh, we're going to start this program with that. My name is Donna Jones. You are listening to the Insight to Action podcast, which is where you'll find business innovation, business innovators, and people who are actively helping workplaces be better and therefore companies be better for the world, making a positive contribution and to the point where it's even regenerating the natural systems we count on for our survival. David Grable is the Enterprise Agile Coach for Vistaprint. Now, David's had an interesting experience we're here to talk to you about today because in David's company, one of the companies that's waking up to a larger scale business transformation requirement in terms of culture and wider systemic change has come about it through an interesting portal. So let's talk about that, David. How did all this begin? Well, it began with attendance at an event called Agile for Executives, which is hosted by Agile New England. And uh, we do it three or four, two or three times a year, uh, typically at the Harvard Club in downtown Boston, and bring in uh, an industry leader who um, has examples of having transformed organizations uh, at the executive level or is an executive in one organization. And the most recent speaker was Richard Sheridan, who is the CEO of Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And he's also um, the author of a book called Joy Incorporated, uh, Bringing Joy into the Workplace. So at that event, there were four or five attendees from Vistaprint, including our senior director of human resources. And she was she listened to the talk and was really taken by it. And she was so excited that she returned to the office, tracked down the uh, YouTube TED Talks that Richard had given, sent emails to her boss, our new chief talent officer, our CTO, our VP of strategy, and really recognized this was very powerful. And it impacted her personally and emotionally, and it aligned with a movement at the executive level in the organization to reinvigorate our culture. The CTO really understood the value of this. He read the book and that really opened his eyes to saying, this is an example of an extreme organization that's really practicing some things. And we might not be able to, to copy them. We're not Menlo. We couldn't do what they do exactly the way they do it. But the extremes in which they operate present lessons that we need to learn. And we timed this trip to be the week before our executive team was doing a full-day off-site on the cultural transformation. We brought 16 people together, and it's not a, a cheap trip. Not only the, the travel expenses and people's time, but uh, the cost of, of the seminar. We did more than the tour, which almost which anybody can get. But we also paid for a workshop with Richard and his founder, co-founder James, and really got insights into how they operate. We saw examples of some of their practices, their intense pair programming, their high-tech anthropologists and really took away lessons from that. And we spent time with individual members of their team that were embedded into our workshop. We had dinner with them, and we debriefed afterwards. And there are some amazing lessons that a large publicly held company, you know, Vistaprint started as an entrepreneurial business and has grown rapidly into a successful publicly held company. And we need to reinvigorate our culture to 
know, get back on the growth track that we've been able to do in the past. And the lessons from Menlo are being discussed as we speak at this executive offsite and is informing the conversation, including the president of our business unit and her complete executive team. And uh, we're expecting to hear what they have learned and what lessons they are going to take as they move forward with this cultural transformation. Thanks, David. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the waking up? Because there's a lot of companies that are in the cusp of need to transform. They have to pivot their current strategy. What, what do you have any sense of what the wake up call came to around? We've got to do, we've got to transform our culture. We've got to mention growth edge, but there's got to be something that triggers it. Well, it started with the fact that we had to reinvigorate our technology because it was successful, but it had grown up over time and it was really time to refresh the technology. And that led to uh, embracing Agile about three years ago in the technology organization. I joined about a year and a half ago to bring that into the creative organization, our internal advertising agency, our design group, and our marketing groups. And we were able to show that there was tremendous improvement in business outcomes by applying Agile. At about the same time, the CEO of the parent organization and the president of our business unit were looking at the numbers and they said, we're growing, we're profitable, but we're not growing nearly as fast as, as we had been. And they started searching for the cultural transformation of the organization in general. And I think it's fortuitous that the discussions from Agile for Executives, the opportunity to learn from Menlo Innovations came along. But it's the, it, it was the combination of success in the Agile transformation, improving the business outcomes and the technology side and the marketing side, coming together with the realization that we need to reinvigorate our growth and, and bring the spirit uh, of the entrepreneurial spirit that started the company and uh, bring that thinking back into the company. Let's also take a closer look at what triggered it for you because you've been on the trip to Menlo, so mm -hmm. whether or not the executive, whatever goodies the executive team comes up mm -hmm. with, but what was your takeaway in, in the role you play as, a, as an enterprise coach? I've, I've read about Menlo. I've heard about them before. I've always wanted an opportunity to visit them. So when the, when the business embraced it, I was glad that I was given an opportunity to participate and I helped with the organization. As an Agile coach, there were a couple of things that were eye-opening for me because, frankly, even though Menlo is talked about as the ultimate example of an Agile organization, they do some things that, as an Agile coach, I would describe as an anti-pattern that I would discourage people from doing. They do some things like, uh, yes, they do pair programming. They do it intensely. They do it six hours every day for both coding and, and testing. But they do it by assigning the pairs. They do it by moving people across projects. And these are counter to some of the things that we've been teaching. It was working for them. So I didn't. I wanted to look at it and so I wanted to learn, here's an organization that everybody epitomizes as the king of the hill for Agile, doing some, some very Agile things and some not-so-Agile things. Some, and they were successful with it. And I wanted to understand what it was, how they were doing that. And what I learned is that by setting some very, very tight boundaries about where the teams were allowed to make decisions, making those boundaries very clear, created a sense of freedom for the team because they knew within those boundaries they could do anything they want as long as they build the right number of hours a week and they satisfy their customer. And so the, the tight boundaries around the organization, so it's not self-organizing, it enabled self-management. And I always thought self-management, self-organization had to go hand-in-hand. Here... 
But the limited self-organization actually magnified the self-management and magnified the impact of that. And conversely, not only did the did the teams know what boundaries they couldn't go beyond, the founders knew which boundaries they wouldn't go into. Mm. So they never inquire, you know, how's this particular task going, or on you or on track. They just assume that if that it either is or somebody's going to come ask them for help. And establishing those boundaries was was such a powerful message and it's something that I would like to help other organizations learn and embrace. Now you're talking to me, the decision nerd. So so what, what I'm very focused on it right now in terms of helping companies do the major, the arc of transformation is what is the criteria, what's the gut instinct for this, because the mantra typically is that won't work here, mm-hmm. but somewhere along the line you have to make the decision around what can we take from here mm-hmm. and, and to apply so that we, we create something that works right. for us, we custom design it. Mm-hmm. If you are making those decisions, let's pretend you're, you're in that spot, mm-hmm. if you are making those decisions today, what kinds of uh, criteria or what kinds of considerations would you, would you apply to the choice for how you go about it in, in your company? Well, the, the key thing I would look at is of the things that work for them, what could you possibly imagine implementing in your organization that wouldn't destroy it? So we're at the size where if we try to do a Zappos and immediately eliminate all managers, that would that could potentially destroy the company. And what's the size of Vistaprint? Vistaprint, parent organization, is about six to 7,000 employees worldwide, about $1.5 billion in revenue. And we're, Vistaprint is about 75% of the revenue. So the, the key criteria is what are the things that can work in your organization? Particularly, can you find a role where the teams feel sufficiently empowered that they can serve each other and each and every one of them has responsibility to each other member of the team and each and every one of them is, is going to have a leadership role? With you managers, that's the lesson that I took. Anything else? Any tips for, given where you are now and in, in watching this unfold, any particular tips you'd offer other people, other agile coaches in your position, or any other uh, decision makers with with having because you have quite an impact in your organization? Anything you'd offer? Well, I would start by reading the book. Richard's book you're referring Richard, to. Richard Richard's book, Joy Incorporated, uh, and I would look uh, also at what, any of the material related to self management. Lou's book on uh, reinventing organizations, the uh, self-management organization, which is an outgrowth of Morningstar Tomato, and uh, the work that Doug Kirkpatrick's been doing there. And Doug actually was the previous speaker at Agile for Executives, and he caught some attention of some of the people at Vistaprint and got them to come back for uh, Richard's talk. And then visit as many of these companies as you can. They're very open. They all want to share, uh, and they're they're anxious to for have an impact on the world. And one way that they can have that impact is by getting other people to learn from them and steal some of their ideas. David, thank you very much. Agile for Executives stimulated the conversation between Dave Grabeau at at Vistaprint and Rich Sheridan from the previous interview. But it's not the first peer-to-peer learning opportunity that's available out there. With me now is Steve Denning, who has been the initiator, shall we say, and facilitator and just about everything for the Learning Consortium, which is really looking at the application of scaling agile as a mindset throughout the company. So, Steve, can you tell us uh, what the Learning Consortium is and what you learned this year? Because I know this is the second year that this has been going on. So, what happened? We are a group of uh, firms that are interested in learning and what is working and what uh, isn't working in terms of uh, modern management. And uh, 
we are interested in agile and lean and DevOps and uh, but not restricted to those um, headings and really looking at any any way that is a better way of coping with a world that is increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, the VUCA world. So we had site visits this year to uh, mostly large firms, Microsoft, Riot Games, Ericsson, BMW, Barclays, Spotify, and Cerner, and C.H. Robinson, and HHP Berlin. So they were a a uh, interesting set of firms, quite diverse. Some of them are very young. Spotify and Riot Games are uh, six or eight years old, whereas Barclays is 325 years old. Some of them are in sectors which are growing rapidly, like Riot Games and Spotify. Others are in sectors which are very mature, like banking and Barclays. But what we saw was a convergence around four main themes. One is a session with delivering value to customers, delighting customers, continuously innovating to add more value to customers. Secondly, a descaling of work, disaggregation of work, presumption that all work should, if possible, be done in small, autonomous, self-organizing teams that are working in short cycles and delivering value to a customer at the end of each short cycle. Instead of scale the organize up to handle complex problems, it's descaling big problems into small pieces and manageable pieces. And one find when one does that, that um, the teams uh, typically get into a state of flow where they are energized and uh, committed and can see the meaning in their work and they can see the value in it. And so they become uh, highly energized and committed to doing the work. That's the second thing that's descaling work. The third thing is the recognition that this is about making the whole organization agile. This is not about having uh, something, some gadget done in the basement of the organization and the rest of the organization stays the same. It's about a different way of running the whole organization, recognizing that it's both top-down and bottom-up. Everyone is involved in it, and uh, it's an organically evolving thing. And the fourth thing is that the culture needed to run these organizations in this fashion has to be actively nurtured nurturing culture, critical things. So those four elements, delighting the customer, descaling work, making the whole organization agile, and nurturing the culture, uh, when you have all of these things in place and operating together as a coherent mindset, then you have a high-performing organization that's able to cope with this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. I think it was in the spring of 2014, we, we did a workshop, a webinar with the, on, on the whole conversation of closing the gap between management and agile. When you're doing this work in these big companies, when these big companies are busy learning from themselves, what is the gap closure between the executive level and, and wherever this is being instigated, or must it be started only from the top? The most successful uh, examples are cases where it is both top-down and bottom-up. In some of the young firms, they were born agile. And uh, so the, the founders, in a sense, uh, set up the organization to be agile from the outset. In the other cases, like Barclays, there was a whole agile movement within Barclays, been going on for 10 years or so, 10, 15 years. But it was underground. But it was also quite... Significant. I mean, in 2014, the 
the group of agile practitioners got together and put together a kind of a manifesto or a set of beliefs about what agile could do for Barclays. And then in 2015, the top management embraced that, endorsed it, and made it one of the top uh, strategic priorities of the organization so that you had a an organic process of bottom-up and top-down. And that is in the most successful way of doing it. If it's simply done from the top, in an attempt to change, sort of directive to change the organization, if it doesn't have any sponsorship down below, then it doesn't work. On the other hand, if it's only coming from the bottom, it will have a very tenuous and life expectancy, probably a short life expectancy, and will be a great risk of being snuffed out by a hostile bureaucracy. So it's both top-down and bottom-up. Now, compared to this year's learning consortium and last year's learning consortium, what let's play Sesame Street, what was the same and what was different? Well, it was a continuation of the findings, and uh, I think there was a great interest in Spotify, um, which has been very prominent uh, exponent, uh, celebrated as an exponent of Agile, but uh, it was interesting to see that they also have their challenges. It's not as though they have um, they have arrived. They are struggling with various things, and they are learning from other organizations which are even less advanced. So that's a useful intermix of firms that are early in the journey and some firms that are quite advanced in the journey. That was one of the things that there is no arrival. That it's a, it's a continuing effort and needs uh, a continuing journey and it's the the agile is the journey it's not the arrival it is the journey that, that would be one thing it's also emphasized the importance of mindset as opposed to tools and practices that was one of the findings of last year but that was certainly very prominent in the discussions this year and probably much more prominent than it was last year but this is about a different way of looking at the organization. That is really the most difficult thing for some of the um, seasoned traditional managers to grasp that it is a different mindset. They tend to be see the agile movement as um, a group of zealots because they do in fact have a different mindset and they are passionate about the change and they believe in the change and they are keen to get others to understand the change. So it can be seen as zealotry by those um, traditional managers, and that can pose problems and get in except. Have any any skepticism between uh, on com, you know companies that are participating in the learning consortium about what they'll learn from people that are in completely different sectors? On the contrary, and that was one of the uh, useful things. Thing is that seeing a firm in a different sector, you actually see things more clearly than if you're. Uh, looking at a firm in exactly the same sector. So C.H. Robinson, for instance, found great insights in their visit to Ride Games, which is a totally different kind of organization. The fact that it is so different makes it easier to see what is what are the essence of Agile and, instead of what are the essence of the particular business. And uh, so that, I think, is one of the strengths of it. We presented the findings at the Drucker Forum two weeks ago and November and 2016 in uh, uh, Vienna, Austria, and uh, in the panel we had Gary Hamill, who's a 
well-known management guru, his uh, his own findings, uh, which have been trying to find probably what he calls most bureaucratic bureaucratic organizations. He believes that the major problem in uh, management is bureaucracy. That this is costing the OECD countries nine trillion dollars a year, and that. Uh, we need to move into a post-bureaucratic mode in which uh, people are energized to uh, to go to work and uh, have fun jobs and are highly committed to doing their jobs. And his group actually participated in the Spotify visit. And so we are coming to very similar conclusions uh, that the, the customer is central, that the small is beautiful, that uh, Working in small, self-organizing teams is the way of the future. And that there is a convergence around these very similar principles, that it is the whole organization that needs to be involved in the change. There may have maybe some areas of difference, difference of emphasis. I mean, Gary would like to emphasize having fewer bosses and cites the evidence of Morningstar tomato processing plant in California that has no bosses. It's all self-organizing businesses that contract with each other, and he suggests that as a model. Um, in our visits to these eight firms, we didn't see that at all. Uh, we did not see bossless offices. We saw managers in all of those organizations, and the, man the managers, though, are acting very differently. They are acting as uh, enablers, not as controllers. They are acting as people who are helping to get the job done. That are the managers that are recognize that the customer is the real boss and helping the teams deliver value and <clears throat> removing impediments to getting that value delivered uh, promptly to customers and realizing that the future of the firm depends on that. So we did not see bossless offices. In fact, we saw organizations with uh, which often had number of layers, but they didn't feel like there were a lot of layers. They felt like everybody was on the same team, in the sense everybody was trying to deliver value to customers. And so it didn't matter uh, how many layers you had, or what it mattered was whether you were in fact on the same uh, mindset. And um, uh, I mean, I, I personally experienced um, uh, very small, you know, organization, just a handful of people of one layer, and it, it, is very, it, could, it was very bureaucratic and uh, uh, very difficult to get things done. But in these organizations, you might have three, five, or seven layers, but you had the managers actually focused on delighting customers, and so it became very easy to get things done. And so our findings suggest that a boxless office is not... Um, is not an essential part of this. Uh, in fact, I asked uh, Gary at the Trucker Forum whether he thought uh, bossless offices was, in fact, viable in in changing settings. I mean, the, the tomato processing sector appears to be a fairly stable sector in which there is no disruption and the business continues pretty much as it always was with minor changes, but nothing really dramatic, whereas these other businesses that we are dealing with, uh, e-sports, uh, music streaming, transport, 
Um, and these are rapidly changing fields. And what my question to Gary was whether he thought these bossless offices could cope with those very different and changing and volatile environments. And uh, you can read his answer on the website. Uh, basically, he, he says that it's an open question. Dealing with disruption is difficult for any organization with, with or without bosses, and certainly it could be a challenge. So that's really an open question, I think. Our, our findings do not confirm the idea that a bossless office is, is ideal. In fact, when organizations like Ericsson have tried to eliminate and reduce the number of bosses, they've often found that um, they need to reverse that. And there is a certain amount of support that's needed. Uh, and even Spotify, uh, which um, they say is a very agile and very young organization, they are growing so fast, found that they need uh, quite a lot of support from the management to bring on new staff. I mean, they're doubling every year, which you imagine that, which is now 2,500 people. They're bringing in new staff at an incredible rate. Uh, it's not simply not possible to do that in a bossless office. That's uh, only in a fairly stable kind of business uh, with, with very little technical change and risk of, low risk of disruption that I think a bossless office becomes feasible as in, um, as in Morningstar. In terms of, of the making the jump inside the, you know, in, when, in the workplaces you were in, in, in terms of these, these companies moving from one state to, to another toward a more agile framework, any particular challenge did they have to face that were in common with each other? Senior managers actually grasp this is really central. And uh, sometimes it happens very quickly. Uh, sometimes it happens very slowly, sometimes it doesn't happen at all. I mean, in the case of Barclays, it happened because the, the new uh, chief of innovation actually came from an agile background. So he arrived on day one, uh, convinced that agile is the way forward, and that is obviously very easy. In some cases, it took, it took a while. In the case of Ericsson, one of the senior managers really took about nine months uh, even though he kind of knew that he should be doing it, he felt he could be doing it, but somehow he wasn't doing it, and really took him nine months to um, to make the switch. And other managers uh, actually never get it; they simply are locked in all ways of uh, looking at the world. And, um, and despite all the experience, and despite site visits, and despite uh, briefings, um, they are still looking at the world in the old way. So. I mean, and eventually death and retirement will solve these problems, but in the short run, there are going to be a lot of organizations that are stymied because they have a lot of senior managers who simply don't get it. Do smaller companies have the edge in making this transformation, you know, from an agile point of view, or, or is it uh, pretty much a uniform challenge across the size of companies? Well, you could say that startups have to be agile. If you're not agile, you won't succeed as a startup. But what happens is as, as uh, firms begin to succeed, they start to introduce bureaucracy. So it's certainly firms that are still in a startup mode have an advantage. But small firms can quickly become bureaucratic, as I say. I've worked in 
very tiny organizations which became which were very bureaucratic and totally non-agile uh, so it's not size per se which is um, which is the problem it is of course it's easier to change a small organization than a big organization changing a small organization you change the leader and you can probably change the, the organization you have an organization of a hundred thousand people I mean it's a massive massive multi-year challenge to change that kind of organization or like IBM 400,000 people and you really have a monstrous uh, change on your hands uh, to try to change that whole organization any particular tips you'd like to give uh, listeners or in particular executives who are considering taking on a different approach to their companies go on site visits join the learning consortium actually go and see how it operates in practice uh, that will be more useful than going to conferences or reading books going and seeing for yourself in site visits is going to be more useful than reading books or uh, or going to conferences that actually talking to the senior managers talking to middle level managers talking to staff who are actually doing the work you'll get a rich sense of what this is all about and you'll get a sense of the enthusiasm and the engagement that it generates and the focus on the customers and uh, and the, the way in which the whole organization is involved in the change so those joining the learning consortium of course is one way to do that as we'll be organizing a whole new set of site visits next year it's intended for organizations not for individuals but uh, if you are in a law significant size organization interested in bringing your organization along then joining the learning consortium is one way of doing that and you can join it simply by writing me an email uh, steve at stevedunning.com and uh, i'll be happy to start the process of joining the learning consortium great thanks very much steve i'll um with your blessing put the link to the learning the last learning consortium report in the show notes there's the latest learning consortium report you have that's on the web, the website at um, sdlearningconsortium.org. Okay, great. I'll put that in the show notes and everyone's still got it. So thanks very much for being on the program, Steve. Really appreciate it. My name is Donna Jones. I'm the host of the Insight to Action podcast. My work is around business innovation, working with other business innovators inside the company to provide a different view, an outside perspective, maybe see things slightly differently, and particularly pinpoint the underlying dynamics that are holding things in place so that you are not blocked by something that is right there. Sometimes it's easier to have an outside view. So that's my role. Uh, please contact me either through LinkedIn, D-A-W-N-A-H, Jones is the LinkedIn profile, uh, or through my website or just Call me or email me at Donna, D-A-W-N-A, at from insight to, to action.com.